Welcome, Xena Society members. I'm so pleased to have all of you join us today. We have a wonderful turnout. I'm also very excited to announce that we have two new Xena Society members since we all gathered together in July, Stephanie and Fred Harmon and Mary and Mark Stevens. Both the Harmons and the Stevens are dedicated to the great work of the Part the Cloud movement. And we are so happy to have, I think Stephanie and Fred are with us today. Um, I'm not sure I haven't heard about Mary and Mark, but we just want you to know how much we appreciate um, you joining us and, and welcome to the Xena Society. I'm so excited to also announce that the Xena Society Challenge issued by Jerry and Mary Jo Stead has surpassed the initial fundraising goal of $10 million. That means the Steads are now generously matching all gifts received from Xena Society members between now and June 30th at 50%. Thank you, Jerry and Mary Joy for your generous contributions. We have a full agenda ahead of us today and we're receiving a lot of great information, including an update from our president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association, Harry Johns, who will be discussing the state of the association. He is joined by Dr. Maria Carrillo, chief science officer, who will provide an update on several recent developments in dementia research. We will also be hearing from our um, Rob Eggie, our chief public policy officer, who will be discussing the recent elections and how this will impact the strategies around our public policy and advocacy work to, best, to the best advantage of our priorities. During the presentation today, all audio lines will be muted. Feel free to ask any questions through the chat feature at any time. And we will also have designated times throughout the meeting to discuss any live questions. So I'd now like to introduce our president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association, Harry Johns. Thanks, Debbie. Hi, everyone. It's great to see each and all of you. I hope you are doing well in these challenging times. Uh, you certainly know that our constituency has been so affected, especially those people in long-term care. And you know that we've been addressing that, Rob and his team, Mike Carson and his, in terms of marketing and communications to let people know about the things we have recommended. And I'm glad to say that in some uh, institutions and some states, we've seen uptake on the things we have recommended. <clears throat> interventions in Florida, where we've gotten three grants from the state of half a million dollars each to supply people with technology so that when they're isolation, they can still make contact with the staff trained to help the family and the individual make contact. All those things are so important in these times. And you know, too, that uh, we at the organization, the association have been affected. You know, we've made adjustments and as a result of those, and as a result of your generosity, you heard Debbie, thanks so much to so many of you, uh, certainly Mary Joy and Jerry, who get, did the lead gift on the Zenith campaign, but to each of you who already participated, thank you. You are making it possible for us to succeed in these times, despite the, what we expected in terms of outcomes at the end of last year, while we had real downturns in several revenue categories. Certainly all the things that so many of you know about the galas, uh, Mikey, of course, and the Part the Cloud team couldn't have the live event. Of course, they did 
really well despite that, but not all of our events can do so well when they don't actually occur live. So we've had those kinds of revenue impacts, but even with all that, with others being strong and again, your very generous support and so many others, we actually hit our numbers at the end of the last fiscal year that ended June 30. So that was very positive, very heartening, and we are doing comparatively well in this year. You know we did layoffs, our staff has taken salary cuts, uh, and we're looking at the point at which we can restore those, and I think we're getting close to the potential for that, keeping the board up to date. The board has been great about setting what is a deficit budget to deal with these times. We actually believe that while we projected a $100 million difference in revenue for this current year, which again will end, of course, June 30 next year, next calendar, we believe we are going to do better than that. Again, thanks to so many of you and so many others. And with all of that occurring, we are actually finding the ways to not only continue what we do, but to advance what we do. We've talked before about what we've learned from doing programs virtually, and we continue to do that, seeing more people participating in those programs when we have them, and actually continuing to make new things occur. The campaign itself uh, that Jerry and Mary Joy got started, and again, so many of you have already helped with, has already led to the development of a new division, the Mission Engagement Division, to get at what are the kinds of things we can do virtually, not only in these times, but beyond. And I'm sure Maria will tell you about a recent meeting that occurred that fits that very description. Very exciting in advancing research as we are also doing with the care and support activities across the country. So thank you so much for making all of that possible. And at the same time, we continue to advance all of the elements of the mission. And you're going to hear more from Maria and more from Rob Eggie uh, as well about things we're making happen in research and public policy in particular. You know, one of the big things that I know you are aware of because you stay so close to what's going on in this space is that for the first time ever, we have a drug submitted to the FDA by Biogen, submitted by any company previously, uh, we have the first drug ever that could change the underlying biology of the disease, not just treat the symptoms. Uh, recently, the FDA had a hearing, uh, what is really an advisory panel consideration of the drug. Our own Dr. Joanne Pike, who is our chief strategy officer, who has previously been our chief program officer, and has such great experience in public health across several diseases, cancer and heart disease, diabetes, as well as now multiple years with us in working on Alzheimer's. She made our public statement to the FDA, which I think you likely all know, but to be clear, was one of urging them to approve aducanumab as something that people with Alzheimer's, particularly those who have the younger onset, the early onset, the uh, MCI stage or the first stage of Alzheimer's uh, could benefit from uh, based upon what the science says. E you each know too 
uh, most likely, that that panel recommended against the approval. That did not fully surprise us. It does disappoint us, but it did not fully surprise us. You likely also know that the science on aducanumab is mixed. They actually at one point stopped the pursuit of the drug after a futility analysis, but the futility analysis from our perspective did not fully account for when they stopped the progress of the testing of the trial. It did not fully account for what had been a dose escalation that had been done not long before the futility analysis kicked in, which was a previously scheduled event. You will likely all remember that the Lilly drugs, Olanezumab, failed and the belief of the science community was in no small part because the dose wasn't high enough. And all of this in terms of what we see in the science uh, indicates that it fits with the latest in the cumulative research in the field. And as you know, there is no other organization that has the same kind of view across everything happening in the field uh, than the Alzheimer's Association in that kind of visibility and breadth of knowledge. Many have verticality and depth. We also have breadth of that understanding. And we believe that suggests that especially given that it would take another four years or more to do another phase three trial to match the successful indications of one of the two trials that Biogen conducted, that is just too long with the positive indications from the trial it is too long for people to wait who have such great need now. And for those especially who are just being diagnosed and those who will be over the course of the next several years, the impact on them is too great to tolerate not suggesting the approval of the drug. We wish both trials were there in completeness, but you know that we are a science and evidence-based organization, while we are also simultaneously an advocacy organization on behalf of our constituents. We believe that our position on this joins those two elements of what we do that no one else does across the world in looking at this disease, these diseases overall, but in this case for aducanumab, this disease, Alzheimer's, that causes the dementia it does that too many of you and I too, and too many of us together are all too familiar with. So we have taken that position, as you know, probably from email that I have sent widely across many, many of our constituencies, ultimately to more than a million people, letting them know where we stand on this. We continue to advocate even after that initial recommendation of the advisory panel. We know that drugs are approved with one trial and supporting evidence. They have approved drugs in other spaces with one trial and other supporting evidence, which exists here. They have certainly at the FDA approved drugs that have been recommended not to be approved by advisory panels. We know that it makes it harder for the FDA to approve it, but we will, as I've said in those communications, continue to advocate uh, in ways that we think are appropriate 
to ultimately come to a conclusion for the FDA that could allow approval. We can't guarantee that, of course, but we are going to continue in that pursuit. And of course, thanks to all of you, we continue every day around the world at any given moment working on what is the science that can ultimately advance not just a first treatment, but the set of treatments that will ultimately be necessary to really re resolve the issue and achieve our vision of a world without Alzheimer's and all other dementia. So we continue that. Uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks to you, Mikey, and everyone at Part the Cloud, each and every one of you as Zenith members. You make possible this largest program of its type in the world among all nonprofits uh, to make possible the continued advances that are occurring. You're going to hear from Rob Eggie about what we continue to advance in parallel with the federal government for its additional funding, where we can seed and speed projects and advance them with the nimbleness that we have and then get them scaled as we have in so many partnerships and so many times before with that new federal money. Now, to tell you more about that, you won't be surprised that I'm about to introduce Dr. Maria Carrillo, who you all know so well as being so good at what she does. But I want to also tell you, because she won't, that it's not only all of us who think so highly of Maria and her leadership in the worldwide effort to change the course of Alzheimer's and all of the diseases that cause dementia, but at the recent clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease conference, uh, one of the more important conferences that is not one that the association runs, the folks at CTAD gave Dr. Carrillo a Lifetime Achievement Award. Now we all know she's too young for that, but she's already had that kind of impact on the field. And of course, I know you'll agree, she so well deserves that award and that recognition. So with that, Maria, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Harry. Um, and thanks to all of you here. Um, our Zena Society is actually the, one of the main reasons why we are where we are and that I received that award on behalf of the Alzheimer's Association. It's actually a nod to the Alzheimer's Association's efforts over the past you know, 20 years. And I'm happy to receive it on behalf of all of us actually, because it is a nod to the organization. Um, and I wanna of course thank all, you all of you for everything you do that enables us to do what we do. I'm gonna go through some of those things today in a brief update before um, I pass you along to um, our next speaker. But as you heard Harry mention, lots of historic moments are happening right now. Oh, wow, I mean, and certainly the pandemic is one of them. So we're meeting virtually uh, and I'm sure all of you are doing a lot on Zoom and you may have Zoom fatigue, but it has actually shaped um, what we're doing and it's shaped the research community as well. In spite of this, research actually continues to move forward. So if I can have, um, I think uh, our slide deck up, Perfect, thank you very much. And the next slide, thank you. So important, I think, for us to note that at any moment in time, discovery is happening. And I'm gonna to talk to you about what's happened in the past 
and bring to you all of that and how it is influencing the present. So this slide really encapsulates, I think, what we have done that has brought us to this other historic momentous moment, which you just heard Harry describe around aducanumab and the Biogen drug and the FDA committee meeting. I know you're all keeping track of this. You've all seen articles written on it, pro, against, many against, as you just heard again from Harry. And uh, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time just talking about how we've come to this point because I'm very proud of the Alzheimer's Association actually leading us and accelerating our progress to get here. Now, Biogen is under priority review. You've all already seen that and heard that from Harry. It means that the FDA promised a decision before, before the end of six months. And that time ends on March 7th of 2021. So a decision could come any, at any moment in time between now really and uh, March 7th. And as you also heard, the advisory committee meeting occurred and we continue to urge approval of the drug based on the data that has been made public. Now this moment is really key. And I absolutely am so proud of everything I see embedded, not only within the Biogen trial, but other drug trials that are in development that are again, a nod to what the Alzheimer's Association has done. Because without what we have done, this moment would not have been possible or would not have been possible at this time. It would have been delayed by years. And your partnership with us makes this possible. So I could give you lots of examples of that, but I've got three up here on this screen that I'm gonna mention. I think all of you are very aware that we have PET scans today that can measure amyloid and new kid on the block this year that can measure tau tangles. But amyloid plaques, you all remember back in the day when we could not do this. And you've all, I think, personally met Dr. Bill Klunk, who's up here on this slide, who, to whom we gave the first grant uh, to do this uh, PET scan um, that at the time seemed crazy that could label amyloid plaques in mice. And of course, lo and behold, we have a fabulous result and he then further develops this in humans. Well, we additionally uh, funded a trial of this in humans. And I think many of you remember a time when uh, we could not diagnose in a living person Alzheimer's, right? We had a clinical diagnosis that didn't involve biomarkers. And today that's changed. Actually, it's not true now, right? We actually have a way to identify the hallmarks, um, whether it's PET, whether it's cerebral spinal fluid, and perhaps soon blood. So uh, I think in the early 2000s, when there was hardly any money at the federal level, and of course that's changed again, thanks to the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's Impact Movement, and Rob Eggie's team and Harry and his work, we today um, don't have this issue. But back in the day, in the early 2000s, being able to embed PET imaging was very expensive. And we managed to do that as an organization. We submitted, we actually funded the largest grant we had to that date, 2006, $2.1 million to embed PET imaging in what many of you know is called the ADNI study. Some of you live in their backyard. And this proposal really changed the way we think about, uh, about the science. Here's what we learned from just that $2.1 million investment two major things. First, we learned that there are people without any memory complaints, they're normal healthy volunteers, and they were found to have positive PET scans, means that they had plaques in their brains without having memory issues. Big aha moment, because for us that really changed our knowledge of amyloid plaques, and that perhaps they're not so closely tied to the disease process, but perhaps they're just a very early 
early occurrence and indicate an increase of risk because it's a risk for tau, it's a risk for other things happening in the brain. So today we are actually taking a page out of sort of cardiovascular's book and thinking that amyloid might look like cholesterol, that if you have cholesterol, high cholesterol, it is a cardiovascular disease. You have cardiovascular disease and it, if we lower it, you might reduce your risk of a heart attack or even a stroke. And today there are trials that we are funding. We are funding in collection with many of you uh, to actually try to demonstrate whether this is possible and that stopping early amyloid accumulation may in fact reduce your risk or stop dementia. In addition, we did realize that another thing we realized out of PET scans is that some of these folks were diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia because of their memory and functional decline, but in fact, they didn't have amyloid in their brain. Again, that's one of the two hallmarks. So it is actually required in order to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So let me repeat that. If up to 30% of individuals diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia did not have Alzheimer's dementia because they had another type of dementia, imagine the impact on clinical trials. Imagine the impact of whether we would be able to find a positive result or not. Probably not. If 30% of those individuals in a trial don't have the target you're trying to treat. Today, all trials that target amyloid, including biogens, require amyloid PET scans to enroll in the trial. And that's very important and a contribution that we played a huge role in. So my second point, bullet point on here is really what again came about after this realization of the field. So we brought together experts because we hadn't revised the criteria for Alzheimer's since 1984, back in the day when it was called NINCDS-ADRDA, and we're the ADRDA, right? So that's how long ago it was because we changed our name to the Alzheimer's Association over what, 18 years ago. So we brought together a group that took us 18 months, but in 2011, we published the first revision since 1984. And this criteria is what Biogen used to identify the participants in this trial, in the aducanumab trial. And this is actually the criteria that many other companies and drug trials even in academia also use. So, so important. My third point, um, the third bullet here, and it really follows on the news that you've heard about Biogen and the safety challenges that are significant, they should not be downplayed, uh, the significant safety challenges that anti-amyloid trials have actually experienced, this brain swelling or edema that they call ARIA. And ARIA really was developed through the Alzheimer's Association. I'll tell you why, because we wrote it. <laughs> um, and I'm really proud of that too. Uh, in the early part of this decade, of the, the 2010s, I should say, last decade, the FDA actually noticed that this brain swelling was happening in multiple programs, not just Biogen's early programs, but other programs of, that are anti-amyloid. And so it sent out letters of caution to stop those trials until they could figure out what that safety signal meant and what safety precautions could be implemented in clinical trials. Well, that was actually really, uh, I think it could be a potential showstopper for this class as a whole. And so the Alzheimer's Association got involved and we convened experts and actually very quickly, we were called a SWAT team in four months. We actually had gathered information and brought the FDA to the Chicago office, the head of the FDA at the time, Dr. Rusty Katz, and showed him what we had acquired in terms of the data, both animal and human data. And we had made suggestions to him on how to handle this brain swelling. And we called it ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, because you could see them on an MRI scan. Within two months of our meeting in Chicago, the FDA actually changed their guidance to our recommendation. And it is published in a journal. And today, everybody talks about ARIA as the main safety signal. 
for not only this drug, but for other anti-amyloid drugs. And it's monitored for all drugs, as a matter of fact. So this should all together give you, should give you a flavor of the impact of the Alzheimer's Association. Of course, uh, how all of our contributions, including all of yours, enable us to be unparalleled in our influence in comparison to any other organization. And I mean, government, academic, or industry, because our influence globally is tremendous. And I just wanted to give you a few examples here of what that looked like. And I wanna stress that of course, we're not putting all of our eggs in the amyloid basket. We have been championing diversity in Alzheimer's drug trials for over 10 years. And I'm so proud that actually of late, we're putting our money where our mouth is due to, of course, thank you, Mikey Hogue, who I see on this call as, and Part the Cloud. Many of you who participate in that are on this uh, Zoom call as well, but through Part the Cloud, we've funded over 60 trials and recently announced 16 new ones uh, in partnership with Bill Gates and more is coming soon. If you take a look at that portfolio, it demonstrates the essence of being able to diversify portfolio that it goes beyond amyloid plaques and beyond tau tangles. So thank you, Mikey, for your vision and all of you for continuing to work with us, not only on Part the Cloud, but on everything else we do, because if we don't fund Zenith Society and Zenith Fellows uh, don't fund the Zenith grants, we also don't have the pipeline to support those Part the Cloud grants. So thank you for that. And um, now I'm gonna just turn very briefly to talking about one of our successes in Part the Cloud. We continue to see so much activity. So I'm gonna highlight one, uh, of course, 18 Part the Cloud studies reported out at AAIC are, um, and also of course, at the recent clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease CTAD meeting that you just heard Harry describe. And so I want to just share with you um, more broadly the impact of Part the Cloud and how we were able to do this. And of course, in collaboration with our uh, Marcom department and Laura Jacobs. Uh, and, and we shared this through the Atlantic where we created two pieces of custom articles and worked with them. And they're currently running on theatlantic.com. So I hope you've all had a chance to see this. They appear as a two page spread in their print publication. One of these articles features Dr. Linda Van Eldick. And Dr. Van Eldick, I wanna highlight, is actually both a Zenith Fellow and a Part the Cloud awardee. And she's an excellent example of one of those uh, basic scientists who has been able to achieve a, uh, the translation of her basic science and push it through into drug, the drug development pipeline and through Part the Cloud actually launch it into human trials. And that's the goal really of Part the Cloud is to give no, leave no stone unturned and allow all of this to actually move forward. She, was a, she received a Zenith Award that she says has laid a foundation for her to then uh, build that house. And so Part the Cloud was vital for again, moving her forward into human trials. These two programs are so intertwined and so it's fantastic to see not only Mikey continuing to be involved with Zenith as uh, she's taken that idea and blown it up into uh, her vision of Part the Cloud, but to see this connection between this basic science, which the Zenith Society funds so well and pushing it out into uh, first in man trials phase, early phase trials, 1B, one, one 2A, 2B. Um, so uh, thank you very much for all of your support on that. In the next uh, um, slide, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about what you might've heard in the news recently. And it's not only about blood tests overall, but in particular, the C21N blood test that's been in the news. Now, overall, we know that 
uh, what Mike might call the Holy Grail loosely um, is for Alzheimer's diagnostics and really early identification is a blood test, right? And the ability to actually do this in primary care where primary care doctors just don't have the time, the um, really the training in many instances to be able to adequately diagnose and then even perhaps treat a person with Alzheimer's dementia or another dementia. And so blood is that amazing holy grail that we were looking for. And if you, you know, would have asked me 10 years ago if I would have thought we were going to have one, I would have told you it's science fiction right now. We just did not have the technology to be able to measure these tiny proteins in the blood that are diluted so much between brain cells, cerebral spinal fluid, and then further as they cross through that blood-brain barrier. But technology is changing, and we are able to then take advantage of technology. And this summer at our AAIC virtual experience, we shared some of the most exciting studies I've ever seen. Uh, and that showed that blood was indeed possible to be measurable and, and actually accurate to distinguish Alzheimer's dementia from other dementias and from others who did not have dementia at all. But since then, C2N Diagnostics has also announced the availability of a test, of a blood test called Precivity ADTM. And I'm sure some of you have heard of this Precivity AD test. The company is actually offering it to physicians already as a test to aid in the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. This Precivity AD is a test that's very new and there is limited information about it, but we have been working with and talking with the company very closely. Our last meeting with the company actually took place on Friday to really understand what they are doing today in the clinical office and what they are planning for in the future. Because this test right now is what's called CLIA approved. So it's a approved laboratory test. It can actually distribute to hospitals, clinicians, but the test is actually not FDA approved. And though there is a difference between those. So approval it has now means it does everything it's supposed to do. The kit is safe, it's sterile, it's good. But FDA approval really tells you one more thing. Um, it tells you that yes, the analytes that they are measuring and the algorithm that they give the physician that tells them that the person has Alzheimer's dementia or not um, is actually approved by the FDA, meaning that a sufficient number of people have been tested in it and that we do have an assurance that it is efficacious on a large scale. Right now, we don't have that. There are about 600 people that have been tested on this. And so it's important to note that it's a clear step in the right direction and we are waiting for the C2N uh, company and leadership to continue on the path towards FDA approval. And actually they are, have assured us that they are moving in that direction. We have actually um, worked with C2N very closely on one other point. Um, we have, uh, 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 have allowed them to use some blood samples to accrue blood samples from the IDEA study. They were one of the add-on studies in the IDEA study. For all of you who might not remember, the IDEA study is the Imaging Dementia Evidence in Alzheimer's Scans study that has, is a $100 million study funded primarily by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, $80 million worth, thank you, federal government, um, and $20 million from other sources, $1 million including from the Alzheimer's Association. Now, this is a, we gathered PET scans from 20, well, 19,000 individuals around the country, and C2N worked with us to actually tap 3,000 of those individuals to see if they would be willing to have a, a blood test. 
and they have actually gathered about a thousand blood samples from our IDEAS participants. Why is that important? Because in order to make sure that this blood test is accurate, you actually need to have a gold standard and amyloid PET scans are a gold standard. So if we've got a thousand blood tests and we've got a thousand PET scans, how concordant is that blood test with those PET scans? And that's what they're trying to analyze now. So we have in fact worked with them and through the IDEA study have tried to enable uh, additional precision around this test. So it's very exciting and we're consistently, of course, as you know, leading and supporting the development of blood, bar blood markers. This includes, of course, the 2011 Zenith Award to Randy Bateman, uh, whose work is also a foundation of C2N, so a second way in which we've worked closely with C2N, um, and it's the backbone of the basic science behind this blood test. So overall, really proud about what's happening with C2N, and we are keeping our finger on the pulse with this team as they move forward with their discussions at the FDA. Now in our next slide, um, want to also mention that we're uh, so pleased to show you some examples of other ways in which at any given moment in time, thanks to the Alzheimer's Association funding, there is research happening all over the planet. I remember, I remember that I've mentioned to you some examples already of our convening, our leadership, whether it's providing opportunities for learning, for other expert guidance, revising criteria, as you saw, that actually is important, even though it might not sound so sexy at the time when we're doing it. But we also know that convening and providing opportunities for early career researchers to present their work, to network, and actually create the leaders of the future is really important. So hot off the presses, I'm really thrilled to share with you that we are moving forward with our plans for AIC 2021 to offer both virtual and in-person options, we hope, in Amsterdam, Netherlands. We're gonna give it another try to go there. And during the week of July 26th to 30th, we, we are hoping that we're gonna be in Amsterdam. And for those that can't, uh, or, um, or, um, or prefer not to travel for any reason, we're gonna try to make sure we have a hybrid option. I can't imagine any of our significant meetings in the future not having a hybrid option for the scientific community. I think you all saw the depth of the reach, or I should say the breadth of the reach we were able to have and how we were able to provide access to 33,000 registrants from 163 countries. We could never replicate that in any shape or form in an in-person meeting. So we, we know that we'll be hybrid if we can meet in person. So the hybrid part that would be dropped is the in-person if we are not able to actually meet safely, even for a limited number of individuals. So hopefully you can mark that on your, on your calendars. And because we've, uh, realize the importance of not only the support we need to do for early career researchers, um, I'm so proud to talk to you next about AAIC uh, Neuroscience Next. So this is uh, a conference that we created uh, and very quickly actually followed through on thanks to our marketing communications folks, our conference services folks, so many that actually had a hand in making sure we were able to turn this around because we had a first ever AIC Neuroscience Next meeting just a week and a half ago. What it was meant to do is to provide a, a platform for students and early career researchers that would allowed them to promote and publish their work. 
So every abstract and presentation at AIC Neuroscience Next is published in our journal as a, a compendium of abstracts. So that's important because early career researchers can then go back and cite their work, even as an abstract, to continue to develop their careers. And so this is, was very timely for um, early career investigators who are particularly vulnerable um, to loss of the opportunity to go to other conferences. They were vulnerable, they're vulnerable now to career delays because of the pandemic. And this really brought them an opportunity. We had big names coming to them. We had uh, a conference um, session with Richard Hodes, Dr. Hodes and Dr. Walter Korschutz. They're the leadership of the NINDS, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, and the NIA, National Institute on Aging. And we had sessions with mentors. We had fantastic plenaries that not, they not only gave, but they actually heard from amazing researchers that haven't even given a plenary at AAIC. That's how hot this ticket was. So it was very cool. We gathered about 5,200 young researchers from 100 companies. Um, I'm sorry, 100 countries, very similar in the format that we use for AIC. So we use the same company. So you, you'll remember that you go in and you see this platform. And uh, it was extraordinary in its reach um, because similar to AIC, we saw how important the virtual format could be as a tool for us. And you know, it's a very unique conference that allowed us to showcase, of course, their innovative work. And we are committed to doing this yearly because what we wanna do is that we wanna expand the Alzheimer's Association's inclusion umbrella. We wanna bring neuroscientists back into the field that might have gone off to inflammation, to other uh, pain, to other types of neuroscience fields. And we want them into the aging and dementia field. Neuroscience is the building block of knowing about aging and of learning about dementia. And so that's why we want them back in. And we held all these panels to give them tips for their careers. And it was just fantastic to see. One of the most important, uh, I think, sessions was fantastic. We had a session where we heard directly from our early stage advisory group members, those uh, that sit on that early stage advisory group that are there with their care partners. And they sat and talked with not only Bruce Lamb, whom many of you know from the board and from being a Zenith fellow himself, but a session where attendees were able to ask them questions. And so many basic scientists said, it's amazing for us to connect the work we do to the output that it can potentially have when it affects someone who is living with dementia. So that was hugely powerful. Um, and um, we uh, also have heard this loud and clear from many researchers at all levels, including uh, Joanna Jankowski, who is a Zenith fellow and participated in this. It was fantastic for her, I think, to get her quote about this uh, and about her participation in the Alzheimer's Association's early stage advisory group session. She herself shared, that she wanted to thank our early stage advisors because she, even as a senior researcher, Zenith fellow, had the opportunity to hear stories that she doesn't typically hear. So I think that was very touching and fantastic to see. Um, and she uh, has also shared how impactful her Zenith fellow award is to her work. And it's just an example of more of one more project that has been supported by the Alzheimer's Association today. So in the next slide, you can see here that uh, this is just a snapshot of the portfolio today. 550 projects supported by us totaling over $208 million in 31 countries. And in the last five years, I'm so proud that we have impacted an additional 
$1.4 billion in investment in the field. Incredible, incredible nod, not only to the association, but to all of you who have given us the, your trust and your advice on this journey. And so thank you very much to all of you for your help in this. And a great example of this leveraging, uh, besides Part the Cloud, which I have already mentioned, is the funding for our dominantly inherited Alzheimer's trials unit. Many of you know the Diane trial unit. You participate in the annual meeting, you fund it directly. And then in the next slide, I'd like to just share with you a little bit about what we're doing there. Today, I'm, I'm excited that we're moving forward with another $14 million to support the Diane 2 study in their next generation of tau drugs. I wanna thank particularly the GHR Foundation for your commitment, Fred, of $7 million towards this funding because that match allows us to go out and look for that match of another 7 million that will complete this $14 million philanthropic promise to the Diane Tau edition. And all of you know how important it is to not only continue to study amyloid, but also Tau and so many other targets, like I've mentioned already with Park the Cloud. And this is an, <clears throat> and just to share with you that that commitment from GHR has already spawned an additional 3 million um, from Edward Jones so far. So we are you know, really pleased with that original 10 million out of 14 already coming together, thanks to Kathleen Seitz, Donna McCullough, and of course their leadership, but also to all of you who continue to work with us and trust us to work with these programs that actually change the face of the science, that actually change the trajectory and the speed at which we can do science. So thank you very much. In fact, Many of our Zenith fellows have taken these initial findings from Zenith Awards, and, and I know that uh, they've done further development and moved into clinical trials like Dr. Van Elden. But I'm going to share with you a few others right now. Now, we um, shared that we had a pause in our program. I know you all heard that because of COVID. So we didn't run our traditional programs towards the end of the year when in March, we realized that the pandemic was gonna be an impact, not only to all of us as well, we were sent home by Harry on March, I think 13th, but actually also to science. We started realizing that they were gonna have a hard time not only completing the, their pilot work, but also getting in touch with their mentors and, and creating the grants and getting in touch with their grant offices just to get signatures. So we had um, uh, a pause, but I'm excited to share with you that Labs around the world and in the United States, in, uh, in addition, are of course inclusive, are reopening and they are actually do working, I think, more efficiently. There's a lot of shift work happening to make sure labs stay safe, especially for large labs. And so we're back in action. And so <clears throat> the Zenith Fellows Program actually launched last week. We have did a call for Zenith applications, and so we will be working to review these selected grants because letters of intent are coming in, and we'll be launching not only our Zenith Society grants, but also our early career um, programs as well in the coming weeks. We wanted to launch Zenith alone first because Zenith is really our, um, our flagship program that really highlights uh, the senior leader scientists in the world. So uh, we've done that already and coming soon will be our early career researcher announcement as well. We've made some adjustments to timelines. It's important to notice to, to note that yes, um, science is back in action. 
But we have been told through all of our contacts with our current funded awardees and others that we have to make some adjustments and be realistic about what's possible. It seems that even though we're not traveling as much, uh, I know all of you have experienced the same thing. There seems to just be more work and more going on regardless. And I wonder myself, how on earth did we do all this when we were traveling? But researchers are in the same boat. And so we are making adjustments to the timelines to allow applicants more time for their applications and actually our reviewers, because all of you know we have a cadre of 7,000 global reviewers, we want to give them more time to actually complete their reviews for us. So watch for more information. It's going to be a little bit of an extended timeline, again, uh, being sensitive to the situation that we are living with today. So I know it's a lot of information I've thrown at you and I talk fast, which I've had caffeine, so it's even worse. Um, but I want to thank you all for your commitment to everything that you've done and, of course, your support and partnership, your trust that we are moving all of these pieces, all these irons in the fire are actually kept there and we're keeping them on. And so our work together is certainly not done, but I hope that you share with me the pride I have in our successes and we'll continue to make successes together. So thank you so much. And I think I'd like to open it up now to Q&A and feel free to ask any questions and then they'll cut us off when it's time. Questions, anyone for any of us? This is the uh, quietest this group has ever been. None? Nice to see so many faces, though. Oh, my goodness. It's great to, it's great to see all of you, but I believe has something. I do have a question. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Marie. Um, when do you expect doctors to have access to this to these medicines that are about to be approved if they're approved by March? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think um, I think Dr. Pike is on as well, isn't she? I think she can help answer this question. But if we do have a response by the FDA by March, I know that Joanne has been working on a timeline and things that we might do. Joanne, are you there? I don't think I don't think Joanne's here, Maria, but uh, we know that the company is uh, working to have it available naturally as soon as possible from their point of view. Uh, it normally takes an extended period, a year or more. Uh, we think it's plausible that it might be less than that. The biggest challenge on this one, Joan, is that we know that diagnosis we have done some pretty extensive work on how any drug would come to market and what it would take and how we might facilitate people benefiting, not doing the drug company's work, but how we might facilitate, as you've heard Maria say, this drug or no other would have been possible if we hadn't done the things, thanks to all of you that we've done. Similarly, in this case, diagnosis is the single biggest barrier to any drug once it comes to market. So in this case as well. It's a little bit like the COVID vaccine you've recently heard about from Pfizer that has to be stored so cold. Not that this has to be so cold, but this has a problem because it's an infusion drug. It's not an oral drug. So there has to be the building of the infusion infrastructure. Now that exists in cancer, for example, but 
I know at least we know that when Lilly was going to bring their drug to market of planning solanezumab before it failed, uh, they were planning to create their own infrastructure because they didn't think people would want to go to the places where cancer patients were being infused. That's a choice for the company, but that infrastructure has to be built. So plus or minus a year is probably the likely answer. Maria, anything you would add? I think the only thing I'll add is we know we've been talking to them, uh, to them, to Biogen through the ideas study. The idea study is offers an opportunity for those sites across the country to be early adopters because they already have neurologists that have collected PET scans for our study that might be a part of the requirement, of course, to have this drug. So there are going to be a few early adopters, but overall, that's the timeline. You just heard them. We've got some challenges ahead of us, but you know what? There's no place we'd rather be. That's right. The, uh, that's right, Maria. The challenges that we'll face as a result of having a drug are the ones we've been all of us together working on for a long time. So we're hopeful they'll approve and then we'll continue to work on the kinds of things that will facilitate uh, helping people have access, uh, which is our key pursuit. Thanks, Jim. Anyone else? We've still got a, a couple of minutes here before we need to move on. Okay. All right. All right. So with that, I think uh, we'll uh, transition to uh, Rob Eggy, who continues, of course, along with his team to uh, do all the work that's required, along with all of you and so many others as advocates and congressional team members to advance our legislative agenda. And uh, so important uh, that we do that whatever happens with Educanumab, because we know that it will not be the answer that we've got to achieve much more. So, Rob? Thank you, Harry. I'm sure it's not accurate, but I chose to interpret the lack of questions of people being so eager to hear about policy developments. So you just <laughs> couldn't wait to get to this part. Uh, great to speak with many of you again. So good to see you. And for those I haven't met, um, I look forward to that in person, but great to meet you this way. So I wanna talk through I'll start with this concept of the lame duck. And I think we're all familiar with that term, maybe to one extent or another, but it refers to that period after elections like we just went through um, in the last weeks and following the election where Congress closes out its work with the, the administration and um, wraps things up before the start of a new Congress and a new agenda. So these periods are really important to us. They're important to everybody, but they're very important to us. A lot of our biggest legislative uh, accomplishments have happened in lame ducks. As a matter of fact, 10 years ago from this month was when the National Alzheimer's Project Act uh, was moving through Congress on a rocky path, but we got it done. And it's always a bit of a nail biter when you're working in these periods because so much depends on things falling together just right. And we need to have the relationships to make that happen. As, a, as it happens with Napa, of course, it did become law. It was signed into law by then President Obama um, in early January. It's a celebration we'll mark next year, but it's also um, something on my mind because it reminds us over these past 10 years, I've been thinking about what we've accomplished and it's been quite a bit on the policy front as Harry just mentioned in terms of care and support, but I think especially so in research as Maria outlined um, 10 years ago, we were about just a round off, about $450 million per year 
in annual research funding. With the announcement that the Senate just made a few weeks ago, we're within striking distance if we get this next increase done of being up to over $3 billion per year in, annual, in uh, funding from the federal government. And that increase, you know, 10 years ago, we were advised as the association not to pursue this uh, because it just couldn't be done. And what we're looking at instead, because we were relentless together, advocates, donors, the association staff together, working as a team, we're looking at the largest increase ever over a period like this um, for any disease, except perhaps cancer. Um, if you were to go back in time and look at what happened in the 70s. So it's been a remarkable stretch. It's depended on several things. One is um, bills like NAPA that set the stage, perhaps even more so, I, I would say, well, I won't say perhaps more so, more so, I'll just say it that way, definitively, it was because in the same period, the Alzheimer's impact movement due to donors was really emboldened and able to launch in terms of building the relationships that we need with Congress. And that happened over this same period. So I'll weave in a little bit of that story as well, where we are today on that front, as I give a, a sketch about where we stand in light of the most recent elections. I'll say some names of people in both parties um, in the next couple of minutes. And uh, some may cause you to inwardly cheer, some may cause you to wince. In each case, not mentioned for any reason other than these are members of Congress that we think are gonna be very important to moving our agenda forward practically to achieve what we need to achieve for the millions of Americans with Alzheimer's and other dementias. So that's the context in which I uh, refer to some of these people from both parties. So uh, first of all, it remains true in this, in this lame duck through the election that we're where we've always needed to be with a steadfast commitment to a bipartisan legislative strategy. If we were ever in either party to be seen as a one party issue, nothing that had accomplished would have happened and nothing that we want to accomplish will happen by the nature of our issue. We must be bipartisan and that's the way we've pursued our strategy. The other two quick ways I'd summarize our strategy is first of all, it's broad in the sense of our advocates who are tremendous nationwide. Thank you to many of you who've been advocating coming to the forum and doing other things, meeting with your members of Congress over the years, but we meet with every single member of Congress that way. It's not just Congress. We also, with every presidential election, are very active on the campaign trail. And this campaign cycle um, with our President-elect Biden, the third question he received in his first town hall ever in New Hampshire was from an Alzheimer's, one of our advocates, asking President-elect uh, President Biden what he would do about Alzheimer's if elected. And we saw over the course of this campaign by Biden and many others who are back in Congress, even if they didn't make it where they wanted to end up or in other important positions, that he began to mention cancer, uh, excuse me, I was gonna say cancer because of his son has always been a priority of his, very understandably and appropriately. But he also began to mention Alzheimer's and dementia spontaneously on a rather frequent basis. And if you happen to be watching his address um, after the election, where he mentioned um, cancer and Alzheimer's is his two examples of what we need to accomplish in curing these two diseases, uh, captures where he is now, or he believe he will be throughout his administration on this issue, a very receptive White House, but 
having said that, we don't think this administration, it's never been our approach to get the administration to drive our agenda. We drive it through Congress and want an administration that will welcome it and work with Congress as they do what we need them to do on this front. And I'll, I'll set aside our work on the states and with federal agencies for this uh, overall picture. So on that front, that's what happened on the campaign trail. We were just as active though with congressional races, race by race. And I'll just give you mention a few of these things to um, give you a sense of the work that we've done as we've, we've honed in as we have over the last 10 years, for instance, with the re research increases. If we're broad with our advocates or narrow fundamentally with AIM and very specific to apply enough of a focus with different members in both parties that we actually change their minds or strengthen their commitments if that's where they're at to do the hard work we need them to do on behalf of this issue. Um, some of you have heard me say maybe too many times the fact that we don't need just members of Congress in important positions to nod their heads and be okay with what we need to do. We need them to actually carve out space on their limited agenda and put our issue at the top or right up close to it, to actually push through and get these things done. And that's nowhere more true than in research. This time of year, every year thereabout, um, you may have heard of jargon like the four corners or, or different things that refers to the key negotiators, two Republicans, two Democrats, House and Senate, who get together in what's called the appropriations process to figure out where they're gonna, how they're gonna parcel out funds. And we have been pushing aggressively here. I've already talked about the results. That's gonna happen again in these coming weeks. It's actually happening right now with um, members of Congress. Those four principals are, are with their staff doing those negotiations right now. And we'll see if they'll be able working with the administration to finish off the funding bills this year. But the goal they have is December 11th. And I've mentioned that we have pending in that um, another increase of $354 million for Alzheimer's and dementia research, as well as an important increase to what we've started through the BOLD Act, which has become law in our work with CDC. So that's what's at stake. Now, if you back up a bit, in addition to our advocates work, we have been with every one of those four members of Congress intensively again this year. Just a few, uh, what would be Harry about a month ago, and so you know from participation, we had a meeting with one of those people through AIM um, with Senator Murray, who's in very important, not just as a member of Democratic Senate leadership, but as one of those negotiators and appropriations in addition to some other very important roles for us. And um, Harry, I think you've, you've told me, we had, I'm happy to say so many advocates of a screen like this one, um, that I stayed out of that one. So we have as much time for advocates, uh, our donors to, AIM supporters to be speaking with the Senator in that case. But Harry, I know from your comments and others that she was as receptive and strong as we've heard her in terms of her commitment to Alzheimer's research. The principal driver of these increases in the Senate has been uh, working with her as a partner across the aisle has been Senator Blunt. In the same way we've been with him and will be, several of you have made it possible to be with him in the exact same way um, this coming Friday. And there too, we sense strong commitment. Despite all these increases, we don't hear wavering. We don't wanna hear wavering. We hear still an understanding about the importance of research and that we need to continue to push it forward. So that as well as with their house counterparts, 
is how we're intensively working to be part of those negotiations, even if we're never in the room. We want to be on their minds as they're in the room, and we've succeeded on that front. In the same way, we've been doing similar work with members who are important for our agenda overall. Let me mention one example. As, as we were looking at the point that, and it's still pending with Georgia, right? If you're a news junkie, you know what these upcoming two races, it'd be hard to miss it, I'm sure, these days. But even though the uh, control of the Senate is still in question, uh, we knew that no matter what, it was gonna tighten quite a bit. And we wanted to be sure that we would be in a strong position. One thing we did then was, um, again, thanks to several of you I know to be able to do this, um, was to meet with Senator Coons, who is a really close longtime partner, almost a mentee, I, I suppose he might say, of um, President-elect Biden's and somebody who was referred to would be, um, if not drafted into the cabinet, a key person for, uh, if there were a Biden administration, a key person who'd be a liaison to the Senate in that work. And uh, as a matter of fact, I understand the one thing that might keep that from happening moving to the cabinet is with the Senate this close, that he would be absolutely essential to working out bipartisan deals because of his style and may be asked to remain in um, the Senate for that reason. So that's an example of somebody we were with just a month ago to make sure that somebody like that who's key to brokering deals is thinking about Alzheimer's and somebody we can commit to, and he is fully on board with that. I'll mention one other example uh, of this. Again, Senator Collins uh, won a tough reelection in her case. Um, the, the point we raised there, and I wanna call out, I don't know if I saw Bob, but I saw Bill Thomas who really uh, allowed, uh, graciously allowed AIM to, with their hosting uh, to be with Senator Collins at a very important event earlier uh, because of how important she has been in this last Congress, even this lame duck, to finish up some bills that she's helped champion for us, but also looking ahead if she were to be reelected. And um, some of you may have noted uh, a story, depending on what news you follow, that referred to her as the most important person in the Senate this coming year. That might be exaggerated, but it points to her role as one of those pivotal people um, that's essential when you're teetering one way or the other to get that vote. That is a vote that could be up for grabs on a particular issue. And so to have her in that pivotal position be one of the strongest champions for Alzheimer's of the Republican Party is of course very important for us. So again, bipartisan illustrations of how we've worked with both parties in this stretch. Now, all that's to set up future progress. So just a quick look ahead on to where we see ourselves going. The first thing we see is that we need to keep research increases going. Maria referred to the fact that there are so many avenues to pursue. And this is not easy science, it's, it's intensive science. And to um, get investigators, as she described, um, with Neuroscience Next to get them engaged, involved, get the funding they need to pursue daring new ideas um, is so important. Your role in doing that is absolutely essential and critical at the front end of this work. And then how encouraging it is to finally have a federal government with the resources to follow on what you make possible with the funding to bring that to fruition, if it's the right avenue and to move to whatever's next, if it turns out not to be the right avenue, but regardless, to be able to relentlessly pursue where we need to go. And that's the, how the pictures change, but we need more resources 
to continue moving as fast as we can. So that is going to be front and center on our agenda. In addition to the work we're doing more and more with the CDC, that's what we call the appropriations process. In other bills, I am extremely excited about a bill that we have been working on for years to lay the groundwork for. Um, we've laid the groundwork um, in some ways with, with bills we've already been pushing, such as some of you are familiar with the Hope for Alzheimer's Act, which um, was taken by CMS and turned into the first dementia-specific benefit that it covers now care planning. So that was a step towards where we need to be, a system that does plan in a cohesive way and provides the comprehensive care that we know that those with dementia need and so often lack. What we're going to look to do in this new Congress is a very difficult step and one that is going to take time, but it's going to be to move in the fee-for-service world of Medicare, where most of our constituents are, into value-based reimbursement. It sometimes goes by the jargon, um, which I try to avoid, but I slip into alternative, alternative payment models because it's an alternative way in fee-for-service to pay for the services that those in this case, that the, those with dementia need. And we know how comprehensive and coordinated that care needs to be. And the fee-for-service system, for whatever strengths you see in it, um, and there are some, it has never worked well for our population. It, all the incentives run the wrong way. So this is a bill to fundamentally change that. And that is a tough lift. It's an example um, of a bill where, I'll just speak in some generalities here. I think it's a, it, to generalize for reasons I'd be happy to take a question on and Harry or I could answer, and many of you could too. It's turned out to the surprise of many that a Republican controlled Congress has been more favorable for research funding increases with strong champions in both parties. I, again, to generalize maybe a little too much like I just did with research, on the care side, we see that the stronger it is on the Democratic side, the more likely this kind of proposal is to move more quickly through Congress. It can be difficult no matter what, but more feasible to move quicker if it's a Democratic-controlled Senate, for instance. So we already know that our Senate champion for this initiative will be Senator Stabenow, who will be with, with AIM again. Again, thanks. I sound like a broken record here, but thanks for support for many of you to allow that to happen. We'll be meeting with her. She's enthusiastic about this proposal. And regardless, um, she is looking forward to finding a Republican. She has some Republicans of mind to uh, corner about this, to work with her on it, and to move this forward. How fast she moves may depend on Georgia. But regardless, she will find a Republican colleague to be carrying this forward in the Senate. So that's a bill that um, is going to take a while. It may move quickly, but it probably is going to take a while. And the implementation is going to take a while. But it's the fundamental restructuring of our care system. That's so important, whether we have a new therapy or not, uh, regardless, it's where we need to go. Um, and it complements so much our health systems work and other work that the association is leading on nationwide. So that's, that's the bill I really wanted to highlight for you as something new and extremely important and exciting, I think, for where we're heading. Another legislative initiative I'll just mention um, to wrap up this look ahead, as we have many things in mind, is, um, a bill that squarely focuses on what Maria mentioned, of diversity in clinical trials, in this case, with the diversity of the trial participants of those enrolled in trials. Um, you may be well, very familiar in many cases with the fact that 
in many trials, the enrollment, it ends up not looking much like America as a whole. And many important populations have been underrepresented. And this leads to real serious concerns about how valid the research results will be for different populations. And so that's something that the association has focused on. And we are looking to extend that same focus into our public policy work with Congress to be further encouraging that move. So that's another area we can anticipate that we will have a legislative initiative this year. We think it's very well timed for the coming Congress in terms of being able to move that initiative forward. So that's a look as we're looking to, um, to wrap up this year, just to summarize, um, we've already accomplished something called the Younger Onset for Alzheimer's Act, a really important bill for those younger with Alzheimer's to extend the services of the Older Americans Act to this population. We have uh, two more bills that are pending in lame duck, as well as the research. Um, and we have a possibility, we'll see how we get on each of them, but a all of them are in play right now to be successfully concluded in the coming weeks. So we'll enjoy Thanksgiving and then get right back to work on those fronts. And thank you so much for working with us on all these areas, just as you do on research. We really, really appreciate it. So with that, I'd be happy to take any questions if there are any. And if you have no questions, it will blow my theory that you're waiting for policy. So, <laughs> you know, while you're while you're conceiving questions, I might just add uh, so many great things happening there. And as Rob said, uh, so much thanks, uh, so many thanks to so many of you who make those things possible, as well as all the direct research we do, the dynamic of the research together that we can drive as a result of all that. But on that alternative payment model. I know that, as Rob said himself, can be a little bit elusive. What's so important there is that we now have research on care that has caught up to the point of being able to potentially demonstrate to policymakers that we can improve care for individuals who are diagnosed, improve their quality of life, and potentially improve quality of life for carers for caregivers as well, get reimbursements for those things and actually potentially net even or save the system money. It's that kind of thing that really has the potential ultimately to change the course of care. And if you think about the treatment coming to potential as well, once we get a treatment approved, whether this one or another, treatment becomes care. So our work in care is altogether different and advanced in multiple ways by something like this legislation that Rob's talked about. Very exciting potential, again, driven by research with the potential to change lives in the numbers of millions, uh, even on the path of getting what will ultimately be all the treatments we need and all of these things you're making possible. So. I believe we're entering a new phase. Whether we have this next treatment or not, I believe we're entering a new phase as a result of the cumulative evidence from science that you made possible. And again, it's so much that you have made possible, as Marita described, because we at the association create the environment for just about everything else. Uh, no intent of arrogance in that statement, just factually, 
as Maria demonstrated, without all of you and without the association, Educanumab would not be at the FDA because those facilitating things simply would not have been done. It's a little bit like it's a wonderful life. Without you, that drug wouldn't be at the FDA. And without you, no other drug would get to the FDA because still a third of the people in the trials wouldn't have amyloid in their brains if it was an amyloid drug, for example. So I just want you to know how much difference you make in all these ways. So questions for Rob or back to Maria or for me or any of us on any of the things going on. All you have to do is hit that unmute. That's all it takes. Rob, we have had a question come through the chat for you about um, how do fee-for-service incentives run in the wrong way or work against constituents? Thank you. Yeah, so I'll, again, I'll speak in, in broad terms. Um, it's important to say that a lot of good care happens through fee-for-service, but it's not because of the system. It's because of dedicated providers who... Uh, who provide that kind of care despite what the natural incentives would be. The natural incentives are because you're reimbursed for incidents, typically speaking. You know, it, it's often said it works great for a broken leg or you gotta put a cast on. It doesn't work so well for something that takes a lot of care, consultation, advisement, and um, the integration of different services. A lot of time just talking through issues with um, the person with dementia, their caregivers is appropriate and then bringing different providers together. Our, our fee of reimbursements for providers, it's gotten a little bit better because of the work of the association, for instance, that new benefit they'll apply now for when they do care planning, now that is reimbursed at a reasonable rate, but still it doesn't fully capture what's needed. So today we've, we've encouraged, and it's a, as a result of NAPA in large part, there's been demonstration projects is what they often call in CMS in broad strokes, so I'll say, funds research, they often will call it a demonstration project. And they have had some very important demonstrations that we've been very actively involved with. And they found that under the current, they found good results, but under the current Medicare fee-for-service system, that kind of care isn't financially feasible. It just won't happen because the right elements that do save money to the system aren't captured and rewarded by the schedule of what's paid for. And so we could endlessly tinker with that system, but that's a losing way to do it. Much more important is to be able to, as Harry said, come at it from a different direction and reimburse for value. It's a notion that's very popular with both parties, um, but they have a understandably and reasonably a high evidence standard to get there. And that's a lot of the legwork that Harry referred to that needs to be in place before we can move forward with this kind of legislative initiative. Anyone? You must all have Zoom fatigue, because I know this is not a shy group. So. Okay. So, uh, Debbie, I think I'll uh, give it back to you. Harry, we actually just had one more question come through the chat there right at the, the last moment. Um, a question about how, uh, for Maria, uh, what we know about how COVID is impacting individuals uh, with dementia or mild cognitive impairment, or perhaps those that would develop in the future. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we we know that um, that dementia itself, uh, you know, physically does not make people more at risk. It's everything surrounding them, right? The that not only the age uh, that makes them more vulnerable, but all of the other diseases they may be living with, the um, inability perhaps to remind people to be safe around them or to wash their hands as frequently, et cetera. So, and I, we know that in long-term care facilities or in other residential situations, they are at much more risk. And I know that Harry and Rob can speak to this much more than I can. I can share with you on the science side um, that uh, we have uh, launched a study, uh, an international study with uh, some co-investigator leadership, Suda Sashadri, Dr. Sashadri at the University of Texas Health Sciences um, in um, Houston, Texas. And importantly, this will try to follow individuals over 60 who come into hospital systems or who are a part of cohorts like the Framingham Heart Study and other large observational studies around the world. Um, in order to see if someone comes in with a positive um, hospitalization for symptomatic COVID, want to enroll them in a trial and follow them for a year and a half, because we want to see what happens, whether the individuals have dementia, mild cognitive impairment, or actually are healthy. If they're over 60, we want to follow them and see what happens, because we have heard reports, and many of you probably have too, that COVID actually impacts the brain and where it's unclear whether that impact is going to have long-term consequences. Right now, we know short-term impact is, yep, a little fuzzy, a little confusion, certainly headaches, certainly the lack of sense of smell, um, delirium. All these things are actually mean that the virus impacts the brain in some way. And so we have to understand what that means over the long-term, especially if it puts someone in additional risk, does it tip them over more towards uh, the diagnosis of dementia earlier, all of that is unknown, and that's why we're following these through this group of individuals. But on the long-term care side, I welcome my colleagues to speak to that. Go ahead, Rob. Please. Yeah, so long-term care is a, is a place that we've been uh, purchasing this aggressively with Congress and then also at the state level. And um, I, just in general terms, it's it's been um, consuming for our staff and advocates as we pursue this because we know how consuming this is for all of our constituents right it's appropriately consuming for us and exactly an important place that we would not have anticipated a year ago of course who did right would never have mentioned this but it's where we have spent probably at the state level about at least over half of our effort has been on addressing what COVID is doing especially in long-term care congregate care communities um, and and we're all familiar with that really sad story all too often about what the impact has been. We've seen some responses, but it's been difficult. It's been difficult to get the appropriate attention on some what we think are some aggressive but really sensible steps that need to be taken in terms of testing and other measures that have been needed. So we have seen some progress though. I'm pleased to say on the state level, it's state by state, a mixed picture. Um, on those steps, but a general consensus that if, whatever the disagreements may be, and we have them in our country about this, um, that we have to make sure that we protect those who are most vulnerable. And on that basis, we have seen some important movement as well as in Congress. We have some important things. If there were another COVID package, we've had important elements that we push for in each of the COVID packages to address this issue. There'd be some more, but that last COVID package may wait to, to uh, the new year 
and we'll be working aggressively there to, to continue to address this as we're waiting for vaccines to be distributed. Yeah, thank you. thanks for all that work. And so I think what you hear everyone in that regard is that we've had some successes, we've got much more to do. And I think that basically describes where we are overall. Uh, I hope you walk away from this discussion with a sense that even with disruptions that you heard about from Maria in the research world, we are continuing to drive momentum across everything we're able to do in our mission, thanks to you and other generous donors, but in particular, thanks to you and what you have done and continue to do to help us uh, continue to advance things in these times. Uh, we actually are at a very rapid set of increases on many fronts, but we still have much more to do. Uh, it's a challenging time, but we continue to make it happen thanks to you. And with that, uh, Debbie, I will turn it back over to you. I don't see Debbie. Wonder if uh, she's she's here. She's on mute, and her video is off. Oh, there she is. Yeah. Hey, Debbie, can you hear us? Your um, muted video and audio, it looks like. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. Sorry. Um, had a problem with the mute button. So uh, thank you, Harry and Maria and Rob. I'm sure I speak like my other fellow uh, Zena Society members when I say that that was fascinating hearing all the news and exciting things that are happening. Um, and I'm also like to, um, you know, just getting these these updates, I think is, 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 is very um, uh, helpful. So thank you again. Um, I also want to one more time um, thank our newest uh, members of the Zena Society, Stephanie and Fred Harmon and uh, Mary and Mark Stevens. Um, I can't wait to, to spend more time with you and get to know you more. And we just really appreciate uh, your leadership here. As you also heard today on this call that just today, hot off the presses, we have a date for AEIC. So um, please mark your calendars for July 26th through 30th, 2021, which will either be held, uh, I guess, hybrid or virtually from Amsterdam. And then also um, the AIM Advocacy Forum will be held virtually this spring. So look for more information via email uh, with updates and upcoming events as we look to next year. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season and look forward to seeing you in 2021. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, everyone. Take yeah. care. Bye. 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 Okay.